have executive pastors. Through the survey, they found that only 4% of them have consistently biblical beliefs and behaviors. Now, I'm going to tell you what that says. That says in some of these areas, they're, they're hiring, you know, with executive pastors, they're hiring somebody because they can do the books. Or they're hiring because they're a good administrator. They're not hiring because they're spiritual people. And we should never hire that way. We should never, we should never do that. Um, 4%, um, 40%, 41%, so 4 out of 10 pastors in our country have a biblical worldview. Well, if you don't have a biblical worldview, it's going to skew. And what happens is it's not like they get up there and, and they're, they're all the way on the crazy end. They have a mix of some Bible and some of their own personal preference. Look, folks, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter. I mean, I have, I've, I have my opinions on things, but I, I, I always want to go back, and my opinion ought to be based on Scripture. Now, there are things where we have to come up with our own you know, decision on things because there's things we read it and we go, yeah, I don't see it the way you do. And that's why we have some differences in things. But it should be a biblical worldview. And uh, so what he was talking about in here, he said, keep in mind, Barna warned, that a person's worldview primarily develops before the age of 13, then goes through a period of refinement during their teens and 20s. From a, from a worldview perspective, a church's most important ministers are the children's pastor and the youth pastor. He added, discovering that seven out of every eight of those pastors lack a biblical worldview helps to explain why so few people in the nation's youngest generations are developing a heart and mind for biblical principles and ways of life and why our society seems to have run wild over the last decade in particular. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And uh, we were talking about this in the office, actually, before I read the, the article. We were talking about this this morning because I saw a tweet from, uh, I think the guy's name is Daryl Harrison. He's involved with John MacArthur. Um, I think that's his name. But he, he does a great podcast. He, he, he just is a sharp guy. But he was talking about he would not have a youth pastor. It was under 30 years old. So we, 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 we hire youth pastors that have no experience very little education, and then put them out there with our most vulnerable segment of our population, of our, of our congregation, and, and there's no, no solid foundation there. You know, that was very important for us as we were searching for our associate pastor, for Pastor Aaron, and I'm thankful to have Aaron. Aaron's a seasoned, mature uh, man. He knows the scriptures. We don't have a novice there. We have someone with, and, and he's overpouring into these, these young people. Uh, it concerns me. And I worked with FCA, so I worked with churches, and I saw the youth pastors that were involved. I can't tell you how many times youth pastors, oh, yeah, they're all in until they get a, somebody offers them a job making a little more money. All of a sudden, they're not called to ministry anymore. And uh, I don't know why we've got this idea that our youth pastor has to be wearing skinny jeans and 20 years old. You know, it's, it's this, they, they got to look like the world and whatever. That's, that is not what we want. You want somebody that can, that is grounded in the Word of God, and uh, man, it's just. I mean, it's. I'm glad that the of the pastors listed there, it's the the senior pastors that are the highest percentage of worldview, but only 41 percent have a biblical worldview. That's shocking, and it's and it's and we and, and it's 
It's no wonder. So in, on, on Mother's Day, a Texas church worshipped God as, uh, as female. Yeah, they sang uh, good, good father, but they changed the words to good, good mother. And they worshiped God and they changed all the pronouns in the service. And it shows you the absolute ignorance and stupidity of people because God is not father in, in the sense of, of he's male, but it's masculine. And father is a role. Okay? He's not mother. He's father. Jesus called him father. Jesus didn't call him mother. Um, so, uh, but this is a self-proclaimed progressive community based on belonging, not beliefs. Okay. Uh, and they have a female pastor, which will tell you there, there's no biblical worldview. There's no biblical foundation. They don't understand It'd be interesting to see how much is left in the scriptures after they cut out everything that um, they don't agree with. Austin, Texas. Wouldn't surprise me. Didn't surprise me a bit. Austin, Texas. All right, so that's what we're facing, folks, and it's more and more and more of this. As we look around, I mean, just know this is what's coming. And if you're not ready for the fight, get ready for the fight. And when I'm talking about a fight, I'm talking about standing. This is you stand. You do all you can. You stand for the Lord. You stand. You stand firm. Don't back up on the truths of the Word of God. And I'm not, you know, people hear you say, well, fight. You know, you can say fight. If you're a conservative or you're a Christian, you say fight. It's hate speech. But you can have a loony leftist who will say, go get a gun. We're going we're gonna to arm ourselves and, and fight. But that's not hate speech. I don't get it. I don't get it. So we understand. Just be ready. The attacks are going to come more and more and more. And this, what we do here, we had, we had four families that visited with us Sunday. And, you know, I wasn't here, but I heard. And, and they said uh, multiple times the, the conversation was they want a church that's standing on the truth of the Bible. And that's what we're going to do, folks. We're going to do it over there. We're going to do it over there. We're going to do it in here. We're going to do it in small groups. We're going to stick on the Word of God. And, and if it offends, okay. Be offended. Because I'm going to, we're going to preach truth. Amen? Amen? All right. All right. Revelation chapter 3. So let's see where we can get. I know we won't get through tonight. I've got enough here in the notes that I know we will not get through tonight, but we'll, we'll go through this. I'm not going to be in a big hurry, but we are in Revelation chapter three, verses seven through uh, 13 or where we're at tonight. And uh, we are looking at the church in Philadelphia, the church there in Philadelphia. So verse seven, we'll begin right there. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write These things says he who is holy He who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. There's just so much in that right there. I can spring right from there. I mean, there's so many things. You see the power of our Lord and our Savior right there. He is holy. He is true. He has the key of David. We're going to talk about that. But he opens and no one shuts. What he does, no one can undo. 
What he, what he, what he, sh- what he opens up, no one, you know, no one can, no, can shut it. And what he shuts, no one can open. I don't know how you pray, but I have always prayed in the, in the area of ministry. Lord, open the doors of opportunity. And I prayed, Lord, shut the doors of opportunity. You know, he can shut the doors just as easy as he can open them. And what I find a lot of times, I've heard people go, we're praying for the Lord to open the door. And what that means is, if they can get their nose through there, they're going, regardless of what really is. They're going to make that, well, the Lord opened the door. And I can't tell you how many times someone has told me, the Lord told me to do this or led me to do this, only to come back later on and say, you know what, really... The Lord didn't tell me to do that. I, that was me. That was my flesh. Folks, uh, Raymond and I were talking this morning, and I was sharing, I think it was this morning we were talking, I was sharing with him uh, uh, that I've never once looked back. In 22 years of ministry now, not one time have I looked back and said, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. Because Gina and I have prayed through every decision We've gotten down the road and been in situations that were really hard. We've never looked back because we, we made sure that it was what God would have us to do. I, I, folks, I would doubt my salvation before I would doubt that God brought me here. When I see the way the Lord brought me to this place... I mean, it's, there's, I, 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 don't, I would have zero doubt of that. And, and I would never doubt my salvation. I don't have any doubt of my salvation. But I doubt my salvation before I... Because I saw how the Lord moved us from a great situation we were in in Indiana. Moved us down here to go to work with FCA. But what I've realized is he brought us... He had to get us here to get us here. And it's just amazing the way the Lord worked. But... There were times where we stepped out and it was difficult, it was hard, but we didn't regret it. So what I'm telling you is pray, Lord, open the doors. Lord, shut the doors. But then do what he, do what he, respond to what he does. Don't kick a door down that he's shut. So the vision of the king... That's what he's given us here is a vision of him. Is he who is holy, he who is true. So the vision of the king, King Jesus, always precedes the vision for the continents. Now it's interesting as we just come through our mission conference, and I'll tell you again, I'm, I'm proud as I can be of our church in the response to that. Uh, $3,000 a month committed in faith promise giving, giving above our normal giving, above our regular giving, to go to our mission budget. $3,000 a month, and as that builds then we're going to take on lots of missionaries. We're going to be bringing missionaries in, letting them present to you guys, let you hear what they're doing, and then we as a church will vote on those. Um, and we're excited. Our mission committee went and met last night. We're excited about just vetting and getting to know new mission works. Um, but that's when you get a vision of the king, King Jesus, then you can get a vision for the continents. You can get a vision for the lost people of this world. You're not going to care about them out there if you don't have a love for Jesus. You're not. And, and, and if you don't have that great love. So listen to this story. John Phillips shares this about William Carey, kind of in, that, in the vein of that thought there, the vision of the king. William Carey was a cobbler. In his little workshop could be found the tools of his trade, a book or two, a Bible, a Dutch grammar, and a copy of Captain Cook's Voyages. But the most interesting thing was the homemade paper and leather map on the wall. 
As he cobbled shoes, Carrie's thoughts were far away over the seven seas. He had seen the king in his beauty and the countries in their dark and crying need. On May 31st, 1792, William Carey preached his famous sermon in Nottingham in England. The text was Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, and it was on, he titled it, Lengthen my cords and strengthen thy stakes. The words poured forth like the waters of a fountain from the deep recesses of his soul. His message deeply impressed the delegates of the Northamptonshire Baptist Association and thus was formed a mission society that awoke the church from the lethargy of a thousand years. Carey became the association's first missionary. He went to India and flung himself into the task. He started a factory. He learned a dozen languages. He became professor of Bengali, uh, Sanskrit, Sanskrit, and uh, uh, Maratha. He sounded the gospel across the length and breadth of the land. He built the finest college in the country, produced a brilliant translation of the Bible, hired missionaries, and hammered at India's heart. The vision of the king had given birth to the vision of the crowds. And so you, you, you're going to see in a minute as we get into this why, why we're looking at that, the vision of the king. Because the Lord here in verse 7, he gives us again another characteristic of himself. This, all of the letters to the churches are for us. All of them. We want to peg ourselves and go, well, that's us right there. Yeah, we're, we're the church at Philadelphia. Man, we're the, we're the awesome church. But, but the truth is, if you read through, as we read through the letters, we've taught through those letters, we can see ourselves in every one of those. And I would say individually, we can probably see ourselves in that, in the warnings that are given, we can see ourselves. But as a church, we can see ourselves in those letters. And so there's some things here that almost fits with just where we're at right now, with what uh, the Lord is revealing here to them. So this is the second to last of the seven letters. And like the second letter that was written to Smyrna, the church is not rebuked. It's, it, it, this church, Philadelphia, is in no way rebuked. Uh, the letter is Smyrna. They were not in any way rebuked, and they're not called to repentance, but they're, they're commended by Jesus. The Lord commends these two churches. And so as we think about this letter to the church in Philadelphia, remember that Jesus called the church in Smyrna to be faithful unto death. That's what he told them. You know, he, he, he commended them, but he told them, be faithful unto death. And uh, so both letters, uh, they also speak of those who say that they are Jews and are not. We find that in both of these letters. And in both letters, these Jews are identified as a synagogue of Satan. We have to understand you, you know, what he's saying here. When, when, when Christianity came in, Judaism is no longer, it's no longer the way to the Lord. They have rejected the Lord. They have rejected coming to God. And so when he speaks of a synagogue of Satan, that's what he's talking about. So remember, it seems that these letters are arranged. And I think we talked about this in, as we were uh, introducing uh, the study, how the letters were broken down. And the first and the last letter seemed to mirror each other. The second and the next to the last letter seemed to mirror each other. And then the three in the, in the middle are, are grouped together. So it's very intentional in that. So now we look at verse 7. Um, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, 
He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So faith is not a vague spiritual sense. Now, I think faith is one of those words today that gets abused. Um, it, it, it's like, well, we have, I have faith. I hear people say, you know, I have faith. What do you have faith in? You know, faith is, is not the end all. It's, what you, it's the object of faith that's what matters. It's, so what is your faith in? So faith is just not, it's not just some vague spiritual sense. Faith is an active confidence that what one does, uh, that what one d- does not presently see does actually correspond to reality. So our faith is, when we have faith in Christ, though we may not see him, we, we, we believe, we have confidence that what we don't see, it, it, it does. Our faith is in confidence in, in what we don't see. It's in, it's in the Lord. There is a reality there of, of God. There's the reality of Jesus Christ. We know that he sits at the right hand of the Father. While we don't see these things, we have faith in these things. So our faith in Jesus does not grow because we think about faith. And again, we hear people go, well, you know, you just got to have faith. What does that mean? That sounds like an old song from the 80s. <laughs> Gotta have faith, faith. And some of you are already thinking it before I said it. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, you don't grow your faith by thinking about faith. Our faith in Jesus grows because we are made more confident in Jesus. So, you know, I fully believe that Jesus intends for every one of these introductions to the seven letters to build our faith in him. So everything he says as we see him, and you go back to chapter 1, and he's, as we see a description of Christ, it should grow our faith. As we read these letters in, in every one, he's giving more of himself. He's telling who he is. And he says here, he says, these things says he who is holy, he who is true. Jesus announces himself to the church in Philadelphia as that. He who is holy, he who is true. And only Jesus with the Father and the Holy Spirit of God are completely holy and true. The fact that he is true speaks to his reliability. Um, He can be trusted. Amen? The Lord Jesus can be trusted. We can trust him. There's, there, I, I don't know, you know, there are people we trust, right? There are people that you would have confidence in. My daughter, as a child, loved me. She loved me. She trusted me uh, to an extent. We, I remember getting in the pool. I've probably shared this story. She's standing on the side of the pool. I'm in the pool, and I'm trying to get her to jump in. And as much as she knew, Daddy's going to catch me. She didn't trust me. She just, you know, I, mm-hmm. I know you'll catch me, but I don't know that you'll catch me. Um, and that's when she about tore my thumbs off. As she jumped in and I'm like this, she grabbed my thumbs and broke them back this way. And so I, I, I'm having trouble in my older age with my thumbs, and I, I, I blame her. This pain's right here. I'm thinking it's her. But he can be trusted. When others, others even, the, even the person, I would say, Gina, I, 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 Gina, you can trust me. But, but she can only trust me so far. There's no limit to the trust we can have in Christ. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. And the fact that he is a holy speaks to his purity and total consecration to God. Uh, he will not lead his people into sin. He can be followed. So the Lord can be trusted and the Lord can be followed. And those who hear Jesus announce himself as he who is holy and he who is true have their confidence in Jesus increased. 
As you imagine that letter, Jesus is sending that letter to us. And tonight, we read this letter here written to that church. If this was a message to the church at Geneva, and we read that, and he who is holy, he who is true, he is speaking to us. Boy, that's going to grow our confidence in Christ. It grows our confidence in who he is. And our, so our confidence, our faith grows. So this confidence in Jesus, however, is not just some abstract um, assurance. It's not just some Something that, well, you know, it, it, this confidence is practical and it's specific. And Jesus articulates the practicality of it and the specificity of faith in his holiness and truth in the next words of verse 7. And he goes on to identify himself as the one who has, uh, he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And this statement is, is from Isaiah twenty two twenty two. And that verse reads, The key to the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. And the mention of the key calls to mind Jesus' words about the keys of the kingdom of heaven that we find in Matthew 16, 19. He says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound uh, will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the point here is that Jesus is unstoppable. Again, what he does is unstoppable. What he says, when he says stop, that's it. You're not going through that. When he says come, if he says go with something, he is unstoppable. Whatever the Lord decides to do, it's going to happen. He is holy. He will not lead his people into moral error. He is true. He will not lead his people into intellectual error. He opens and no one shuts, and he shuts and no one opens. He will not fail. So Revelation 3.7 here proclaims the trustworthiness of Jesus for us. It should grow our faith when we read that. It grows our trustworthiness in Him. So the question then is, do you trust Him? You know, again, I'm, I'm, when I preach to this Wednesday night crowd, I feel like I preach to the, the choir. It's like, the, you know, preaching to the choir. Because this, this is a strong group that comes in here. But the question remains, do you trust Him? You know, if you don't trust in Jesus... Um, are, are you confident enough in what you do trust in to bank your eternity and your eternal soul on that? If you're not going to trust in Christ, you're trusting in something else. Are you willing to trust? Are you willing to, you know, you have the confidence in whatever it is you're trusting. Folks, you're trusting in something. People go, well, I, don't, I don't serve anybody. Listen, if you're not serving Christ, you're serving Satan. If you're, not, if you're not a child of the king, you're a child of Satan. You are not your own person ever, ever. You are a child of Satan until you are born again. Only then are you a child of God. You ever hear people say, oh, we're all God's children. That's not true. If you're not born again, you're not a child of God. You are a creation of God. You, he, he, he owns you, but you're not his. Because you have not become a child. You are not a child of God. It, it is through a personal relationship. Do you trust? What are you trusting in? So, you know, bring your questions to Jesus. You bring all your objections to him. You know, bring to him um, the things that, that you prefer to him. Your wealth, your job, your entertainment. 
We make choices, folks. I, I don't know if you realize this, but everything that we do, we're making a choice. Everything we do. You know, whatsoever you eat or drink, whatsoever you do. Everything that you do, we should do to the glory of God. Amen? So everything we do, uh, driving down the interstate. Jason, there's a few temptations, aren't there? You, know, you, want, you, you, you may not say it, but you probably think it, right? They're, 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 the fools that cut you off or... You know, they all, they, they, a guy was with, he couldn't have been more than a foot. He cuts me, cuts in front of me the other day. Couldn't have been more than a foot from hitting the front right of my, of my car. But is it your wealth that you trust? Is it your job that you trust? Is it, is it entertainment? What is it do you trust? Do you prefer those things to him? Because you're making a choice. Um, bring the things that tempt you to sin, your immorality, your theft, your lies, your gossip. What, what, what sin is it that you're tempted by? Bring that to Jesus. You bring to, to Jesus everything that, that you can gather in your attempt to deny him as Lord. Bring it all to him. And you know what you're going to find out? As you bring it to him and as you compare it with him and as you, and as you question it with him, you're going to find out that he is holy and everything that you prefer to him is filthy and defiled. Everything. Everything compared to him is filthy and defiled. And you can find that he is true. And everything that you believe instead of him is false and hollow. And you'll find that what, what he opens, no one can shut. And what he closes, no one can open. And everything that resists him will be destroyed. It will be. Test him. Test him with your questions. Test him. Trust him. Verses uh, 8 and 9, and we go to verses 8 and 9, and it's keeping the word. It's keeping the word here. It's an open door. So verse 8 says, I know your works. I'm going to say this right here. That right there, if, if the Lord wrote us a letter, that ought to just scare us to death. Amen? Amen? It, I was thinking about that today. We've read through all these letters. I think this is the next to the last letter and, and we've gone through now six, this is the sixth letter, and he says it every time. I know your works. I know your works. That ought to scare us to death as we read that because he knows our works. Now, when we talk works, you know, we're not talking about digging the ditch. We're not digging the holes for the calves that died, Brent. We're not talking about that. We're talking about everything in your life. He knows it all. He knows your thoughts. He knows your, your attitude. He, he, I mean, he knows it all. He knows the stuff you do. That, that you do it because you feel compelled. Oh, I don't have any choice. Uh, or we do it because, you know, if I do that, they'll see that I'm doing that. It'll make me look good. God knows those things. Nobody else but you may know that. But he knows that. And he knows when I'm going down the interstate and my family's with me and somebody cuts me off. He knows what's going on in there. It may not come out here, but he knows what's in there. That ought to scare us to death, folks, when it says that, that he knows our works. I know your works. Folks, that ought to... I, I've seen... Uh, when I was... Uh, it was right before my junior year in high school. We were in a wreck. So my, my uh, a friend picked us up. It was actually the guy who led me to the Lord picked us up. We were in a little Chevy Chevette, if you're familiar with those, a little two-door Chevy Chevette. And he's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. My best friend is behind the driver, and my brother's behind us. 
And we go up to, he's coming up the drive and he never stops. And he pulls out. And as he pulls out, I hear the guy in the back seat call the driver's name. And I look up and all I see is a grill. And I hear tires squealing as they're locking down. So they're speeding through a church zone, about 60 miles an hour through a church zone. He doesn't stop coming out of the driveway, tries to get over. She, when she locked it down, she skidded over. And I locked up and I thought, oh, it's, oh, it's going to be bad. And it was so amazing because I remember being all tense. That's the worst thing you can do, right? They say, worst thing you can do is be tense. And I remember thinking, oh, I think she stopped. And I relaxed. I've never felt anything like it. Hit us. We did a flip and a half, threw me out through the side window, threw my friend out the front window. And uh, the guy in the back broke his jaw. He had a concussion, broke his collarbone. We were blessed that he didn't kill the, the two on the left side. I mean, we really were blessed. And uh, I said all that to say this because on the front of his car, it said, God is my co-pilot. God should have been the pilot. Maybe we, shouldn't have, we wouldn't have had that wreck if God had been the pilot. Folks, God knows your works. Don't, don't, he knows our works. He knows what we're doing. He knows everything that's going on in our life. And if we would think that way in everything we do, that not, well, we, we know, we know. Do we not know the Lord's with us? We know this, right? But how do we get the mindset so that, I mean, there, there's things you won't say or do if somebody else is standing right there. But he's right here. He's here. How do we get that mindset and that understanding that he is right here? It would change. I think it would radically change us as believers if we really grasp that. We almost live like we don't believe that sometimes. I say we. It may be I might be the only one in the room that struggles with that. But we live sometimes as though we don't really believe he's there. Yeah, let's watch that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or let's watch that. Or let's listen to that. Or let's talk about that. He's there. And if we could just embrace that, it would radically change us in the way that we act. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. And it's interesting here. He's telling what he says here. I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength. Um, for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. And it seems that Jesus has given the church in Philadelphia an open door because of their faithfulness. Okay. It's their faithfulness that looks to be the reason that the open door is there. The Lord has applied the key of David from back in verse 7, and he, and he has opened a door for the church in Philadelphia. So what is this open door? So in the New Testament, when you look at an open door in the New Testament, it refers to opportunity for ministry and evangelism. Acts 14, 27. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he, the Lord, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, for a great and effective door has been opened to me, ministry. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord. Colossians 4, 3, meanwhile, praying also for us, uh, 
that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. So when, when, the, when this is being spoke of in the New Testament, a door being opened, this door that is open, it's always speaking of an opportunity to minister, to share the gospel, to do evangelism. And, and it's a furthering of God's work. When he opens a door, there's a reason he's opened a door. And the, the reason is for us to go through it and to tell people about him. And so it seems to be that. And so the context of verse 8 seems to point to the Philadelphia church having success in evangelism and conquering their enemies. So Jesus has opened the door and no one can shut it. He is greater than all. And it seems that Jesus has given this open door in response to the three things that he says about them in the rest of this verse. As we read the rest of it there. And the last two things are two sides of the same coin. So when the first thing he says, Jesus says to them, I know that you have a little strength. Now, it, it, depending on the version you're reading, it's going to read different. It's, it's interesting that I was studying this. I didn't bring it into it, but there's, a, there's, there's two or three different ways the punctuation is done. New American Standard does it one way. ESV does it another way. King James, um, New King James tends to line up more with the ESV in the way it's worded. But the idea here, it, it's the same idea, but it's worded a little different. But it says here, and what I'm reading from the New King James, it says, you have a little strength. They're not strong. They're not big. They're not mighty. And this probably refers to the position of the church in Philadelphia, that it is small. It's seemingly insignificant with an appearance perhaps of ineffectiveness in the eyes of those who look through the lens of the Roman Empire. Okay, so when those are looking at the church in Philadelphia, it's a small church. It's, it's, not, it's not a big, mighty, powerful, you know, mega church in the day. It's just a small church. You have a little strength. You're not a big, mighty force. You have a little strength. Today, this might uh, even be the view of some churches, of some churches by some other churches. There are, there are churches who tend to, to think, well, you know, the number of people you have in your church, that's the, the scoreboard that tells whether you are really, you know, how spiritual you are. Can I tell you, that ain't got nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. Um, they would say, well, you know, you're weak as a church. You can't do much. You're not doing much. You're not doing what we're doing. Um, you, you don't, I, I, won't, I don't like to name names. Um, Y'all going, who are you? Because uh, I, I, I don't mind naming names. <laughs> I don't like to, but I don't mind doing it. Okay, I don't like to do it. But Andy Stanley has made some comments that just absolutely, I think, what a bonehead. And I shouldn't say that about a preacher, but I think he's a bonehead. And I think he's off base. I think he's gotten away from the Word of God. I think he's gotten away from the truths of the Word of God. And he made comments years ago that basically said little churches ought to shut the door and everybody ought to go to a big church. They ought to just come to our church. You listen to him, it's the arrogance that flows that we figured it out. We figured it out. You guys should do what we do because we figured it out. 2,000 years and nobody else could figure out this church thing, but we've got it figured out. And I'm sorry you go to a rotten church. I'm sorry you grew up in a rotten church and a bad church and they didn't do it the right way because we do it the right way. And that goes on again and again and again and again and again with churches that look down on other churches. Well, here I'm looking down on the big boy. But, but that's the attitude that you'll hear from smaller churches. There are little churches all over the country. My father, my, my father-in-law, 
my, I don't know what he is, my, my daughter's father-in-law. What would that be? That'd be my daughter's father-in-law, wouldn't it? So. <laughs> He's my ex-stepbrother's twice-removed uncle. I don't know. I don't know what he is. Great guy, but he's, he's pastoring. He's been at this church since, 19, I think it was 1989. He's faithful. He's been faithful. It's not a large church. They've been up. They've been down. They've had bigger numbers. They've had smaller numbers. And they're in a season right now. It's a smaller congregation. But he's been faithful to preach the word. We're going to be faithful to preach the word. And yet this church, so this church is weak. This church at Philadelphia, it's, it's a weak church. You have a little strength. And this church in Geneva, it's, it's a little church. It, it's, it's got a little strength. But it is God's vehicle for advancing his purposes in the world. Folks, we're, we're a small church, but we can be faithful with what God's given us. When you, I'm telling you, it blows my mind when I think that we, if, if everybody's faithful to your, our faith promise giving and we do what we've done in the past, we, we'll, exceed, we'll, exceed 100, we'll exceed $110,000, $120,000 over the next year given to missions. Go into further the gospel. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. And when we get there, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go for 150. And then we're going to go for 200. And, and I had a pastor one time, he said, I'm going to lead this church to a million dollars a year in giving. You know what? We don't know what God's going to do out here. Things may change in Geneva. It may blow up out here at some point. Y'all understand the boundaries and stuff that are set up could collapse at some point. I'm not, I'm not advocating. I'm just stating facts. It can happen. And they've got ways when money's involved to make those kind. And look, it could blow up and, and, and the numbers in this area, we could go from five or 6,000 here to 100,000 in this area in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And what if in 20 years, we could give a million a year? If we're giving 100,000 a year with 150 folks, what would we do if we had 500 people? What impact could this little church in Geneva make? But it's not just the money giving. It's Wednesday night, ministering to the kids. It's Sunday morning, ministering to the kids. This is our Jerusalem, folks. You can, you can, you can, you can serve. You can minister. You can share the gospel. We have needs to, for you to be involved in the work of sharing the gospel, making disciples, and it starts right here. Maybe, maybe God's going to call somebody out of our church to be a missionary. I'm, I'm a, listen, as a pastor, I'm excited for that day. I mean, we've had our first baby. Uh, Logan was the first as, as pastor. We've had a bunch. I can't keep up in order now because we've had so many. And this year, it's a race to see which one's next. Y'all are like, no, I'm going to outdo you. I'm gonna, you wait. Um, but for me as a pastor, that's something that's going to thrill my heart the day we have a young man says, says, God's called me to preach. God's called me to go to the mission field. Young woman says, I'm going to serve God with my whole life. That's what I'm going to do. I don't know what that means or looks like, but I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. That, that's, that's going to thrill my heart. And it ought to thrill your heart as a part of this church. And maybe, maybe it'll be some 70-year-old that says, you know what? I, I'm financially, I'm good. I'm going to go find what I can do and, and, fin and finish this thing strong.
Amen. Second thing that he says uh, that Jesus noted here was that they kept Jesus' word. And the third thing he said was uh, they had not denied his name. They kept his word and they haven't denied his name. And I'm out of time. So that's where we'll pick up right there next week. All right. Questions, comments before we close?